that no matter what the future brings, no matter the difficulty or the persecution or the trial, we're not left as orphans. He's gone ahead to prepare a place for us. And he promised that if he does that, he will come again to bring us to himself. So you and I, church, we're never alone. You're listening to Kingdom Come, a sermon series preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. starting a new series uh, today for the next three weeks as we anticipate uh, what we call the advent or the arrival of Jesus. And one of the things that I have been asked this year, more than any other year combined, is the question, are we in the end times? Is this the end of the world? People have been asking this question to me more this year than any other time that I've been a pastor. Uh, in the 20 years that I've been pastoring, when I started pastoring at the age of three. Uh, And so people have been asking, is this the end of the world? What will the end of the world look like? And I would say, well, Hollywood has imagined the end of planet Earth in dozens and dozens of different ways. If you ask Hollywood what the Earth, what the apocalypse is going to look like, the end of the Earth, they would say, artistically, it could be a, a couple different ways. Hollywood has destroyed planet Earth, first of all, through natural causes. So a global pandemic. Did you guys know that 2020 was predicted in the movie Contagion? It came out, I think, in 2011 with Matt Damon, and it's a lot of what has happened. Way more dangerous virus, but the world was imagined ending with a global pandemic. Or, of course, a meteor. Uh, Maybe solar flares. And thankfully, John Cusack will save the Earth in his RV. (laughs) There, of course, is volcanoes or earthquakes or tsunamis, mega hurricanes, sharknadoes. There are different things like global climate change. The polar ice caps are going to melt and flood the earth. We're going to be in the next ice age. So so natural causes. Or there is the idea of human error. So maybe it's biochemical warfare. Uh, Maybe it's global thermonuclear war where we set off Whopper and then the end is near. But thankfully, if that happens and all of the country is put into districts, we will be saved by a teen girl with a bow and arrow. This will happen. Uh, Maybe the end of the world is depleting our oil and natural gas supply, which will lead to famine, financial chaos, a dystopian motorcycle gang in leather that is defeated, of course, by Mad Max. Or there could be scientific mistakes that we make through maybe an accidental vaccine to bring about a zombie apocalypse. So human error, that's the second way we've destroyed the planet. Or thirdly, the end of the world could happen through outside agents. So something comes in to attack. Maybe it's an alien invasion. Thankfully, we have Tony Stark or Will Smith, who either way, we're covered. We're going to have the Earth defend it. The one that I think is most terrifying is the artificial intelligence that becomes self-aware. Robots become self-aware, and then they send bad actors back in time to save John Connor. Uh, Maybe it's time travelers who go back and cause a time paradox, which unravels the very fabric of space-time continuum and destroys the entire universe. Anyone know the reference? Doc Brown? Okay. Now, that's just television. That's just the movies. When I was growing up, as a teenager, Michael Stipe from REM was singing, it's the end of the world as we know it, but I feel fine. Well, it's 2020 church, and how are you feeling? Are you feeling like it's the end of the world? A lot of people are. A lot of people are wondering, even outside of the church, is this the end of the world? Are we in the last days? 
If you ask me that question, Pastor, are we in the last days? I would say, well, according to Peter, yes. If you look on the screen, in Acts chapter 2, Peter makes the case that we are today in the last days. In fact, if you get down to verse 20, he says that we are in the last days until the day, the great day of the Lord, the great and magnificent day of judgment. So Peter's entire point is that this verse, Acts 2, is fulfilled now, not in the future. So the last days simply means the days that follow the first advent, the first advent, the death, resurrection, and the ascension of Messiah, Jesus Christ, until the day, the day of judgment. So because Jesus has already come from heaven to earth, born of the Virgin of Bethlehem, fulfilling the, God, uh, the law of God to the letter, and dying as our substitutionary atoning sacrifice for our sins, because he already rose again triumphantly and ascended back to the right hand of the Father, because all of that has already taken place, you and I are already in the last days today. Now, when people say last days, though, they usually mean the end of days or the end times. And this is on people's hearts and minds all around us. Outside of our church, people are panicking. And Pastor Micah did a great job last week of kind of showing us what our posture should be in this exact cultural moment. What I want to do, instead of just being out on the streets with the sandwich board saying the end is near, what I want to do is for the next three weeks address what our posture is to look like in light of the second coming. And so what we're going to do is do a series called Kingdom Come. We're going to look at the last two chapters in 1 Thessalonians. So if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I want to get sort of a blueprint for what our lives are to look like in light of waiting for the return of Christ. This time of year is known as Advent, where we wait and celebrate the arrival, the first advent of our Messiah, Jesus Christ. But what I want to do this year is take a look at how our lives are to look in light of his second advent, his second coming. So if the end is near, should our lives look any differently? And if the end is not so near, maybe it's another 2,000 years away, well, would that change anything? Now, there is a fascinating study of the end times that we call eschatology. Eschatology uh, literally is the doctrine of last things. And I would break this down almost into, there's tons more, but I'll break this into kind of two bigger picture items underneath that category. There is a personal eschatology, which is my own soul's death, judgment, and afterlife. So personal eschatology. And then there's cosmic eschatology, which is the death, judgment, and final destiny of humankind in general. Uh, so what I want to do for a minute is, let me just kind of um, be a little honest with you. Uh, I want to share a little bit of a struggle of mine personally. We all have our personal bias and presuppositions. You know what that means? We all come to the Bible with a bit of baggage, with a bit of a background, okay? So let me share you some of my baggage. I grew up in a home with an incredibly strong view of eschatology. Uh, my dad, uh, who's probably watching, love you, dad, he watches almost every week uh, from Raleigh, North Carolina. Uh, my dad... Uh, loved and still loves the book of Revelation. So when we were growing up, any Bible study that we had, I knew where I'm opening. I'm opening to the back of the book. We're going to the book of Revelation. And growing up, we would study it all the time. Uh, in our home, we were always talking about the Antichrist. Was it Bill Clinton? Was he the Antichrist? Was it one of the Bushes? They're probably in part of that Illuminati. Uh, was it the Pope? 
Or maybe, maybe the Antichrist is someone we didn't expect, like Mr. Rogers. I don't know. Who's, who's the Antichrist? In fact, we talked more about, we didn't talk about Christ, but Antichrist a little bit more. We talked about the mark of the beast. And we, is it a microchip that goes in your right hand and your forehead? Or is it a barcode? Or today, is it a vaccine that Bill Gates is going to force all of us to receive? And so I grew up always talking about eschatology. Anyone else here, you grew up with a home where you were always talking about eschatology? Okay, good, both of us. So uh, you can feel my uh, pain a little bit. Now, not only that, but we are, I'm a pastor. I went to the Bible college. I planted two Calvary chapels. I'm a part of a leadership team of Calvary Chapel. Calvary Chapel, as a movement, has a strong emphasis historically on the pre-tribulation rapture of the church. Even though eschatology is a secondary issue, a lot of pastors have made it as primary as Christ is, is deity and it is the most important issue. In fact, some pastors wouldn't say this, but it's, it's the Holy Trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Rapture. And so that is like all that is talked about every, uh, hey, we're going to open up to uh, Genesis chapter 1, of course, and talk about the rapture. Right? So every verse is a picture of end times. And so for those reasons... I just want to be honest with you. For those reasons, maybe you've picked up on it in your time here at Shoreline. I have, as a pastor, kind of steered away from eschatology because it was so emphasized the first 40 years of my life and Christian experience. So I've considered someone's beliefs about the end times, about eschatology, as less important than other more important pressing issues like soteriology, the study of salvation, other key doctrines. And usually I would say something like this, like, hey, I want to be on Jesus' welcoming committee, not on his planning committee, right? I, I would say, I'm kind of a pan-millennialist. It's all going to pan out in the end. That's kind of what I would typically say. Of course, Jesus himself said in Matthew 24, 36, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. So anytime someone marks a date, this is the year that Christ is coming. Well, Jesus seemed to kind of tell us that wasn't going to happen. They go, well, he said day and hour, but he didn't say year. Okay, come on. Come on. It feels like I'm planning my own surprise party when I'm trying to figure out the exact return of Christ. And Jesus, even in advance, tells us only the Father knows that. So can we just be acknowledging today, we all have bias. We all have presuppositions. We come to a text, we're like, that's the rapture or that's the end time. We, we come to it. And I tend to, when I come to these things, I lean away from dogma when it comes to the end of the world. Uh, now, here's the deal. All Christians, all of us as Christians, believe in the second coming of Christ. That he came in his first advent as the suffering servant, but he's coming again. And this time, when he comes again, it'll be in judgment. We all agree that the book of Revelation describes mostly a future event of the judgment of Satan, the judgment of fallen angels, the judgment of all mankind whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life. All Christians agree that there is a time, there's a period of time when the rule and reign of Christ has extended to every corner of the earth where his justice and righteousness rules all of creation. But where Christians disagree is exactly when all of these things will take place in exact time. Some people believe we're already in this time of the rule and reign of Christ. And that when we talk about a thousand year millennial reign, well, that number of years just means a long time. Others believe we as the church are going to advance society. We're going to usher in this thousand, years, thousand year reign. Others see this world as being judged and the wrath of God poured out before Christ returns. 
and then his rule and reign are enforced for a thousand year millennium. And wherever you land in that argument, um, I have a little bit of fun news. We're actually going to do a special debate on this topic uh, with four different views of the millennium. And so we're going to have someone who's going to argue the dispensational pre-millennial view. We're going to have someone argue the post-millennial view, the ah-millennial view, and then I'll be arguing for the historic pre-millennial view. And millennial, we don't mean by like people in their 20s, okay? I hope, hopefully you understand that. That's not what we mean by that. Uh, but we'll have more details on that um, debate soon. Wherever you land on that argument today, it's a family argument, okay? So that's within the boundaries of orthodoxy, orthodox Christianity. So if you believe differently than someone else in this church, you're still a part of the church. I mean, we're going to pray for you, but we're, you're still a part <laughs> of the church. And so what I want to do for the next three weeks is, listen, I don't want to argue my position over someone else's position and kind of arm wrestle who's right and who's wrong on these secondary issues. What I want to do is agree together. Let's look at the bigger picture. Let's not get stuck in the nuance and the exact timing. Well, Daniel comes in here. Let's just look at the bigger picture and what our role is to be as a part of Christ's church in the last days as we await the second advent of Christ. We're so busy trying to plan it out and map it out that we've forgotten we're called to be a part of his plan of redemption here in these last days. So we need to look forward. And we'll look a little bit more at what it means to stay alert and sober-minded next week. But today we look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Look at, uh, at it with me. Uh, you'll note, if you look at the beginning of 1 Thessalonians, that Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy write this letter. What happened was on the second missionary journey after leaving Philippi, Paul and Titus came to a town called Thessalonica. And three consecutive weekends, only three weekends, Paul goes into the synagogue and preaches Jesus to the Jews. Now, I don't know if you remember, but in Acts, we hear the story that some Jews get angry and they form a mob and they go and they, they sack Jason's house and they drag him out. They're trying to find Paul, but Paul's already left. He's only been there three weeks. He's already gone on to a nearby town called Berea. You guys remember what was special about the Bereans? The Bereans is kind of the, the, the people we want to be as a church. They're the ones who were more noble than the Thessalonians because they, with joy, searched the scriptures after Paul taught them to see if what he said lined up with scripture. They were more noble, and so that's how we're to be. And so uh, what happens right after Berea is Paul goes to Athens. He has that great Mars Hill discourse, and then he heads to Corinth. He's there for a year and a half, and then he goes to Ephesus, and you could say the rest is church history. So he only spent three weeks in Thessalonica. But now we have two books of the Bible of his letters written to this church. What happened was later on, he, years later, he wanted to find out what was God doing in, those, in that church, uh, in the, the church of the city of Thessalonica. He and his band of uh, disciples were providentially hindered from returning there. And so after he couldn't take it anymore, Paul sends Timothy to establish and exhort the believers in their new faith. So if you're in 1 Thessalonians, look at chapter 3 real quick, or I'll put it on the screen if you don't have a Bible, verses 5 through 10. Paul says, For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter attempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you, for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we've been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. 
For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Wow. Obviously, Timothy brings back a great report of how the church is doing. They had faith and they had love that resounded far beyond the four walls of their church and even beyond the city in which they were residing. People all around were hearing how solid the church in Thessalonica was, but not just how solid they were, how solid their faith was, their love was, and people were being impacted. And even though all of this was really good news, Timothy may also have relayed to Paul that there were two doctrinal questions that were troubling the church. Here, we'll put them on the screen. These were two questions that were troubling the church in Thessalonica. Number one, they were wondering what happens to Christians who die before the return of Christ? What happens to them? And secondly, what happens if I live in such a way that I miss his return? I wonder if you've struggled with those two questions. Have you ever wondered, like, what happens to people who die before the return of Christ? Or what happens if I missed the rapture, if I missed his return? Many of us have asked those two questions, and the church in Thessalonica was, David Gusick explains this. He says, in the few weeks Paul was with the Thessalonians, he emphasized the soon return of Jesus, and the Thessalonians believed it earnestly. This is part of the reason that they were the kind of church Paul complimented so highly. Yet after Paul left, they wondered about those Christians who died before Jesus came back. They were troubled by the idea that these Christians might miss out on that great future event and that they might miss the victory and blessing of Jesus' coming. So Paul wants to address this concern, and he begins doing that in chapter 4. Look at verse 13 with me, and we're going to study all of uh, 13 to the end of chapter 4 today. We'll look at the uh, first 11 verses of chapter 5 next week, so you can read ahead, and then we'll, in uh, two weeks, cover the uh, rest of chapter 5. Look at verse 13 with me. Paul pivots here and says, But we do not want you to be uninformed brothers about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. I want you to underline two words. The first word is the word uninformed. Would you circle or highlight or underline that word uninformed? Uh, that word can be translated ignorant in other places. The idea is that you're unlearned, that you don't understand what he's about to say. So what he doesn't want them to be uninformed about is about those who are asleep. That's the second word I'd like for you to highlight or circle, the word asleep. Now, Paul uses that word uninformed or ignorant about four times in other writings, uh, four times total. He says to the Romans, hey, I don't want you to be ignorant or uninformed about God's plan for Israel in Romans 11. He says to the Corinthians, I don't want you to be ignorant about spiritual gifts. Later to the Corinthians, he says, I don't want you to be ignorant about suffering and trials in the Christian life. And then here, of course, he doesn't want us to be ignorant about the return of Jesus. Now, isn't it a coincidence, if you look at the, uh, the items on the screen, that those seem to be some of the areas where Christians are most ignorant about or uninformed about, so false teaching or an overemphasis abounds in these areas, a misunderstanding of Israel, an overemphasis or a lack of emphasis on spiritual gifts, a, a total you know, U-turn like or a, an avoidance of suffering and trials in the Christian life, or about the second coming of Jesus. We get so angry and so divisive about when the return of Christ is going to be uh, that we begin to be ignorant. Uh, and so when Paul says, I don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who fall asleep, 
He's not referring to your uncle on Thursday who passed out on the couch watching the Lions lose to the Texans. That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about actual sleep. This is a euphemism for the death of Christians. The emphasis of asleep is rest. In fact, I don't know if you knew that, but this is where we get the word cemetery from. The word itself, cemetery, means dormitory or sleeping place. Early Christians found this was a suitable way to describe those who were in their resting place. They were asleep. So when someone sleeps, you will have contact with them again. And even as sleep has its waking, so death has its resurrection. Now, when we hear about sleep, I want to make sure we know two important things. Number one, the Bible never describes the death of unbelievers as sleep. The Bible only describes the death of believers of Jesus Christ as asleep. Why? Why would the Bible not refer to an unbeliever's death as sleep? Well, because there is no rest. There is no comfort. There is no peace for the unbelieving in death. When you die as an unregenerate person, meaning you've not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you've not been made alive from death to life because of the finished work of Christ on your behalf, I want to be very clear with you. If that's you, you've never placed your faith in Jesus, you're still dead in your sins. When you die, you go to a place of unrest, torment, and agony, divorced from the known presence of God. So that's an important thing to know. But for the believer, when we die, it's more like sleep. It's more like, hey, it's going to be kind of more of a transitional time of rest. Now, second thing to note is even though we refer to Christian death as sleep, this is not what we call soul sleep. Okay, some people have taught in soul sleep. They're kind of on pause until the end. And so one commentator says this, um, since to depart from this world in death to be with Christ is described by Paul as very far better, Philippians 1, we learned that last week, than the present state of blessed communion with the Lord and blessed activity in his service, it is evident that sleep as applied to believers cannot be intended to teach that the soul is unconscious, okay? So what I want us to do is let's not miss the bigger point here. See, what we do is we go to the eye doctor of eschatology, and we can read every single line on that bottom line, but we miss the big E, all right? So what I want to do is let's not miss the bigger point that Paul's trying to make here. I want you to jot down three important points, but this first one is key. And that is, number one, being uninformed about eschatology can create a lack of hope. Notice what Paul says, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Well, who are those people? Who are the ones that have no hope? That's the unbelieving world. So when someone in the world dies, there is no true hope for those who are grieving. You think about your family members or friends or neighbors who have lost a loved one. They've even lost a pet. And there's this absolute overwhelming grief, but especially for someone that they love, that they cherish. Uh, Now, they'll over time use little phrases like, hey, grandma's looking down on us, or hey, she got her wings like the other angels. They're going to use kind of phrases like that. But in the initial shock, there is no hope. There's absolute devastating loss. And I've said this before, but I think that's why the world tries to kind of avoid even the idea of death. There's kind of an avoidance of death in our particular Western culture. The finality of the grave, we avoid it. We avoid it. Think about this. We, we say about everyone, no matter what their faith was, oh, they're in a better place. I never say that at funerals. I don't officiate a funeral and say, they're in a better place. Uh, one thing that I do say is, and this isn't meant to be misleading, uh, but my pastor, Carl Dixon, um, he modeled this for me um, and kind of say like, 
if that person were here right now, they would make an absolute plea for us to place our faith in Jesus Christ. And I don't think that's disingenuous, but I don't say, hey, they're in a better place. And we say that about everyone, no matter what their faith is. We, as a culture, we don't say, hey, dad died. No, we say, dad passed away, something softer. Dad is no longer with us, or dad's gone. We don't call it a morgue, we call it a funeral home. In fact, even the mortician will do makeup on a corpse so that dead body will still display the appearance of life. We want to avoid death as much as possible. Why? Because for the unbelieving world, there is no hope. It's, it's the deepest part of grief. In fact, I did a, a funeral once of an extended family member uh, who lost their daughter. And I remember showing up uh, at the funeral and observing her, and the grief was so real in her physically that I actually didn't even recognize her. I, it took me a minute to even recognize that was... Uh, this woman's mom. And so uh, grief can be so present uh, that the world doesn't understand even how to deal with it. And so what I want to, let me put this in a formula, this first point. I would say this, eschatological ignorance equals hopelessness. It equals hopelessness. And so Paul didn't want them to be ignorant or sorrowful or hopeless about believers who died previously. He's saying you don't need to express the same despair about them that an unbeliever would with someone that they loved and lost. And so when we, here's the point, when we are ignorant about our personal as well as the overall cosmic eschatology, what happens is that creates a sense of fear, a sense of anxiety, a sense of, of despair and hopelessness. And so what happens is you've done this this year, you put on the, don't do this, but you put on the news, right? Don't put on the news. But you're like, all right, I'm kind of left-wing, I'm going CNN. Or you're like, I'm right-wing, I'm going Fox News. Well, I didn't like their election results, and so I'm going to cancel Fox News. And so you, you turn on Fox News, or you turn on CNN, you turn on something, and you start watching the news, you start beads of sweat. And you start going, Lord, is this the end of the world? I mean, there's a global pandemic, there's racial animosity, there's rioting in the streets, there's election confusion, confusion there's giant killer hornets that are on the loose, what is next? But see, knowing what happens next can help sustain our hope and joy. And that's really what Paul goes on to say, verse 14, he says, for since, notice this, this is a, a rooted in truth, since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. So notice in verse 15, he's saying, hey, we're not, we're not going to be given an advantage here if we're left uh, and haven't fallen asleep, if we're still alive. So I'd like you to jot down this second important point Paul's making. Bigger picture point, okay? We're not getting into the bottom line of the eye chart. Bigger picture. And that is that number two, our eschatological hope is rooted in our resurrection hope. See, we believe as Christians that Jesus died and that Jesus rose. And this is what we can expect for each and every Christian. I don't care today if your faith is weak or your faith is incredibly strong. If you're a true follower of Christ, you can trust that the resurrection power that raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal body. You will be raised imperishable. You should have that hope this morning. Not like, well, I hope my faith is strong enough that I'll be raised. No, if you're a Christian, you will be raised imperishable. In verse 15, Paul says, we declare to you by a word from the Lord. Now, some people think, uh-oh, oh, this is kind of a special little 
message that Jesus himself snuck to Paul and no one else heard about it. Uh, and I don't believe that's necessarily a, a, a reference to secret revelation that only Paul had. Some believe that, uh, but I don't. I believe it's a reference to Matthew 24. Jesus already gave a revelation. He says in, in Matthew 24, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. It's a, a, a kind of a similar picture to Acts 2 that Peter was saying. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Notice with me the trumpet call. Now Paul seems to hint at this in 1 Corinthians 15. You remember this, verses 51 through 57, where he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Really bad sermon joke here, but someone has said that's a great verse for the kids' ministry nursery. I think that is the worst sermon joke. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Yeah, really bad. Yeah, just should have skipped that. Uh, but in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Now notice he says, this perishable body must put on the imperishable, the mortal immortality. And when that happens, then the saying will come to pass. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? You see, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is our, you could say, our template and thus the resurrection is our hope. This evening when we do these baptisms at the beach, we're putting people into the water and saying, you died and you're buried with Christ. But when they come out of the water, hey, that's a picture of you rising uh, to resurrection power, to resurrection life. And that should be the hope of every, and is the hope of every believer. Now there's a variety of different beliefs out there on what happens to your physical body uh, in the end. And so let me just walk through these real quick. Uh, so first of all, there's the view known as annihilation. And Jehovah's Witnesses and atheists believe this. And that's the, the view that your body has an utter destruction, not just of your physical body, but your soul and spirit. So when you die, breathe your last, close your eyes, darkness, that's it. You're just annihilated. Then there's the second view is reincarnation. And this is the idea of your body physically being destroyed, but your soul and spirit will return in a different a physical body. Isn't it interesting that the people who are reincarnated always are reincarnated uh, from someone who's really famous? Like, they're never reincarnated, oh, I used to be a caterpillar, right? They always were reincarnated from, I used to be Gandhi, right? That's always what, what tends to happen. Uh, then there's resuscitation, which is where you don't actually die, but your physical body is restored to life. You didn't actually die. Of course, there's plastic surgery, and that's the idea of going under the knife, and your physical body has given enhancements. Uh, to the same physical body. But none of these are true. We know resurrection is where your physical body is transformed into a spiritual body. And so because Jesus rose again, he says, and Paul gives us this hope, that he will bring with him those who have already died prior to us. And if we're left alive, we'll see a few things that mark the return of Christ. We're going to see the Lord himself descending, there's going to be a cry from heaven. There's going to be a voice of an archangel. And there's going to be a trumpet sound. In other words, you're not going to be able to sleep through any of that. right? You're, you're not going to be able to miss it. You're going to be wide awake. Now, I want to make sure we point out one third and final point. If you're taking note, jot this down. This is really key. 
the most important aspect of the future is Christ's presence. Notice the second half of verse 16. He says, And the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So the dead in Christ, those who have already fallen asleep, will rise and return with Christ. And whomever is alive and left will join them in the clouds and will greet Jesus. One commentator says it this way, this idea of greeting them and meeting the Lord in the air. He says, the picture is that of a group of citizens going out from a city to meet a visiting dignitary and accompany him back to the place where they live. This implies that the Lord returns with his people to the earth. Now, many people will read here a a veiled, hidden rapture of believers, followed by a seven-year period of tribulation, and then culminating in a complete return, almost like there's a partial second coming, but then a complete one later. Uh, This is what's called the pre-tribulation rapture, or pre-trib. Others see the second half of the tribulation as God's full wrath against the unregenerate. So he's going to rapture his church at the midpoint of the seven years. That's called the the pre-wrath or the mid-trib position. And then the position that sees these verses as a description of being called up to the Lord as he returns to rule and reign in his second coming after believers endure the tribulation is known as the post-trib or post-tribulation. And again, we're not here to argue for or against the exact timeline of the second coming uh, because time doesn't permit. There's lots of great resources out there, lots of great believers who uh, think differently on this topic. So I don't want to, again, arm wrestle over the exact timeline. What's the most important thing about eschatology? The most important thing is the reality of Christ's presence. The Lord himself will descend. So here's a formula for you. For Paul, Christ's presence equals encouragement. That's why he says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. That no matter what the future brings, no matter the difficulty or the persecution or the trial, we're not left as orphans. He's gone ahead to prepare a place for us. And he promised that if he does that, he will come again to bring us to himself. So you and I, church, we're never alone. We're told in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, that Jesus would be with us even to the very end of the age. You know the most repeated command in the scripture. You know what it is? The most repeated command in all the Bible. It's fear not. And it's almost always linked to the number one promise in the scripture, which is, for I am with you. Fear not, for I am with you. You see, the abiding presence of Christ with his people is the light which brings encouragement to us in dark times. The personal fellowship of Jesus with you and with me, his church, should be a buffer against any discouragement or confusion. And I want us to rest in the the hope that the Lord himself will descend that he's not going to send an angel to do his bidding. Well, let me send an angel kind of to get the church. No, he himself, as he came in his first advent, born of a virgin, he will come again uh, to be with his people. Now, next week we'll tackle chapter, the beginning of chapter 5 and some more questions about the return of Christ. But I want to apply uh, these few verses and really do that in three ways. So, again, here we are digging in, arguing over the secondary stuff. In the meantime, the world outside longs to know the hope that we have. So three points for us. Here they are. Because Christ promises to be with us, we don't grieve like those without hope. You see, we don't have to uh, panic at the prospect of our own death. I know some Christians, maybe you're here this morning, are afraid of death. 
Remember that great movie, What About Bob? He's uh, talking to this teen boy, and uh, the boy starts mentioning all these different fears, and Bob's eyes start going big. You know, he's like starting to panic about his own death. Uh, the, the fear of death is known as thanatophobia. The word thanos in the Greek is the idea of death. And so many Christians, for some reason, are afraid of death. But many Christians have also stared death right in the face. And they found great comfort knowing that to die is to enter the presence of Jesus Christ. Listen to this powerful passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul says, For we know that if the tent, that is our earthly home, is destroyed, that's our body, our tent, it's temporary. You ever go camping? Yeah, I did too. Uh, it's one step away from homeless. I don't enjoy camping. <laughs> we like to glamp now. We glamp at the Hilton. Okay, that's our camping. But the, the tent is a, it's a very temporary spot. And so we know that if the tent that is our earthly home, that's our body, is destroyed, we have a more permanent residence. He says, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, you groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. And because all that's true, the next part of this verse is the application. He says, so we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, in this tent, we're away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we're at home here or away there, we make it our aim to please him. That's why we're here. It's to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. You see, to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. So listen to me, Christian. When you breathe your last breath and darkness envelops you, I have absolute biblical confidence that if you're a follower of Christ, you've repented of your sins, you've trusted Christ for your salvation, you will be immediately graced with the presence of Jesus Christ. If you're an unbeliever and you breathe your last breath, after the darkness will be weeping and gnashing of teeth and eternal torment. So I plead with you to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. And if you haven't, then after the service today, I'll be back in the back. I'd love to share Christ with you. Uh, and give you the hope of resurrection. You see, that last verse in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 11, Paul says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. That's really the second point here is because of the hope of resurrection, we share the gospel with the world. You see, the world outside of this little corner of Bradenton is grieving and is anxious, and as they grieve, there is no hope. They're looking around going, where is our hope? Is it in politics? <laughs> And they're losing ground in every area. You just see things unraveling in our society. And they have no hope. In fact, a recent Gallup poll found that uh, an estimated 50% of Americans are unchurched. 50%. Now you hear that and you go, oh, well, that's good news. 50% are churched. Well, just because you're churched <laughs> doesn't mean you're a Christian, right? Uh, and so uh, I would say, you know, we have to be careful with that stat. But the, the further research finds that the people that want to be identified as none of the above with a religious affiliation, the nuns, the nuns category is growing significantly in the last few years. We as the church, we have the promise of the great commission that Jesus is with us in this message, even to the end of the age. 
And we have the hope not only for this life, but hope for the next life. We, we don't just have decent news that'll brighten your day and Jesus is gonna solve your problems. No, we have the greatest news in all of creation that the creator God loves and pursues fallen people who are dead in their sins and he loves to make them alive to bring glory to his son. We must share this good news and it must be on our lips and on our hearts often. Well, finally, number three, how could we apply this idea? Well, thirdly, because even death doesn't bar fellowship with Jesus, we should let nothing else. Think about this. The final enemy, the greatest enemy of all. You can't outsmart death. You have Steve Jobs. He couldn't outsmart death. You can't buy your way out of death. You can't try to take the right herbs and I'm just going to go full vegan. Whatever, whatever method you seek to do, you cannot escape. Well, let me freeze my body and we'll, you know, cryogenically. You can't escape death. It's the final and greatest enemy. And death is a separation from our bodies. But as a believer, it's not a separation from Christ. And so we can look forward as Christians, we can look forward to the end of the world uh, or the end of our lives because nothing can separate us from Christ's love. I remember hearing about um, the early days of the Calvary Chapel movement and uh, these hippies going in to listen to Pastor Chuck, and they said, man, something is up because this guy is smiling as he talks about the end of the world. Something is up. And we as Christians can do that. We can smile knowing that nothing separates us from Christ's love, and we have hope in the midst of the end. So even if death, our final enemy, doesn't get in the way of our relationship with Jesus. Why would we let any other thing in all of creation? Jesus has the power to conquer death. So he has power to conquer the trifle struggles that you and I are dealing with. So we this morning should lay down any weight and any sin that entangles and run with perseverance the race that is marked out for you and for me. So as we close, we've been discussing the second advent of Jesus Christ. But during this time of year, we reflect on and consider his first advent. We look at this time of year at Christmas and we realize that the father sent his beloved son, born of a virgin, to save us from our sin by bearing the wrath of God. But one day, he will return to pour out his wrath and set up his eternal rule and reign. And even so, as we anticipate that day, we pray these words from what we call the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, really the disciples' prayer. But we say, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. And that's our prayer, even as we look ahead in anticipation. Lord, we pray your kingdom come. And help me, Lord, to advance your kingdom. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you had a plan from before the foundation of the world. The lamb was slain. And one day they will look from every nation, tribe, and tongue on the one who was pierced, and in terror, we'll say, the lamb who was slain. We thank you, Lord, that you are returning as the conquering king, the triumphant one. And Lord, as we look ahead at that great and glorious day, that magnificent day, the day, uh, we realize, Lord, that we are in the last days. And we have decisions to make. We have a choice every morning to wake up and to live for ourselves or to live for your glory. We have a decision every day to be bound in anxiety and fear and depression and to just be stuck in a place of torment. Or we have a choice to step out of that and to walk in faith and in your promises. Lord, we have a decision every day to withhold the truth of the gospel, to shrink back in fear of man, or in boldness to proclaim 
the finished work of Christ. Lord, I pray for our church that we would not get stuck in the secondary and in the trifle arguments that, that mark the division today in the greater evangelical church, that we would be so focused on making it all about Jesus, uh, Lord, that we're not ignorant of our own eschatology, our own future, and we're not ignorant of the cosmic end, but we can trust that the Lord himself, you will descend. So Lord, thank you for that resurrection hope that we bear within each one of us as believers. And Lord, I pray that you'd give us the strength to overcome, overcome our sin, to realize that you've conquered sin and death, and so even these trifle things we struggle with, you have the power to conquer those. Lord, that we would have boldness and a willingness uh, to live lives that are above reproach and that really provoke people to ask us for the reason for the hope that we have. Lord, this year began with the theme of unshaken hope, and it may have been shaken a little bit uh, throughout 2020, but we thank you that our hope is ultimately rooted in you, and God, you are sovereign over this pandemic. You are sovereign over 2020, and you have a great plan. And all of this, as we get closer and closer to the day, all of this culminates with your great glory. And so to that end, we love you. We worship you. And so we sing this song together. O come, O come, Emmanuel, reflecting back on your first advent, but also keeping in mind that one day you will return very soon. So we love you, Lord. We thank you for this time. And we're excited about this series as we dive deeper into these study of end things. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. at the Port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at God bless you.